Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot. We're a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. Are you ready for science class, Michelle? (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Because I'm going to take you there. (laughs) We're doing history, biology, chemistry, physics. It's going to be fun times. (laughs) High school flashbacks. Great. Yeah. Great. Buckle up, friends. It's going to get wild. (laughs) You teaching me physics can't be much worse than my actual physics teacher, who always wore shorts to class and then like stood in Captain Morgan pose with his foot on the desk. One of those teachers. Does every high school have one of those teachers? Is that a requirement? I think it's a requirement. That is, (laughs) that concerns me. And we wonder why I didn't do well in physics. Right. (laughs) I didn't do well in physics because I'm horrible at it and I don't understand it. But here we are. I just wrote 18 pages about it and I tried really hard to understand it. So hopefully... It's not just physics. There's a lot of other things that happen. Yes, but I went heavy on the science. So if you're not into that, I apologize. (laughs) It's super interesting though. Like I could not put this book down. So, And by the way, we are talking about Chernobyl today. We should probably mention. I mean, you clicked on the show. You should be able to read, I would assume. But if you can't, we're doing Chernobyl. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I went way harder on this than I ever did in any chemistry or physics class. So please be nice to me. (laughs) That's excellent. Excellent. Yeah. But before we dive into that... Let's shout out our favorite responses from our fluff and stuff question from our last main episode, which feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah, that was Diane Downs, man. It was, yeah. We did a book club since then and a morning news. Yeah. It's like it's been a while. So our question from our last Diane Downs series was, what are you most excited for when COVID restrictions lift? What was your favorite? Um, Pamela on Facebook said, live music and hugs. And yeah, man, like, I just want to hug my people and not have to like Lysol afterwards. Right. You know, I will hug certain people, but most, most people know that I am not a hugger. I mean, you're not a hugger. I've hugged you, but that's, well, that's (laughs) only in very special circumstances. Is that allowed? (laughs) Not very often, but it's happened. (laughs) Right. So, you know, I was well, this sounds bad. I was always excited for like COVID restrictions to be like, people stay away from me, but people don't respect shit. No, no, they don't change anything. And they would still like talk to you an inch from your face. And you're like, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? Oh man, that, that line on the floor in the post office where it's Mm -hmm. like stand here and then like six feet in front of you, there's another one. I love that. So like, there's nobody in my bubble. I love that. I, I love that too. When people respect it right <laughs> you please continue to distance unless yeah unless a hug is invited then that's because okay. i think we've determined that humans are disgusting so oh 100 stay away from me yeah <laughs> well-known fact by now yes um my favorite response came from kelly lees on instagram and she said i'm really grateful for celebrations to be big again although i am really grateful for and appreciate the small get-together celebrations too Agreed. Yes. It's really nice, especially for like weddings and things. Weddings. It's so nice to see people like have all the people that they want there and they don't have to pick and choose or only have like 10 people present. Like that's not, that's not fun. So it's really nice to be able to see people being able to celebrate again. 
Totally. I agree. Mm-hmm. And I think that if COVID's taught us nothing, it's how to celebrate little and, and you know, how to share those things with the people that can't make it there. Right. So, right. And also to appreciate when you can get together with other people. Totally. Awesome. Well, that's all I have for the top of the show. Cause I have a lot of talking to do. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just, I just wanted to say I'm back in the yes. closet, right? Which is always fun to say. Um, but this will be the last time that Tara and I record together with me living in this house. Mm-hmm. It's so exciting. Almost everything is packed. I moved to my farmhouse this week and I'm so excited, but there's still lots of packing to do. So much work to be done. It's very exciting. It's going to be weird. It's the last time you're in the closet, but maybe maybe there's a new closet for you. I don't think it will fit me. No. I don't even know where I'm going to record from (laughs) when we move. I'll figure that out, out. but you know, for now. Fun stuff. For now, Michelle's Fun in the stuff. closet. Yep. And it's hilarious. Yes. <laughs> Love it. Well. All right, friends. Grab your glass and get cozy. Let's talk about murder and science. Murder. Is it murder right now? I don't know. We'll see. Uh, debatable. But anyways. Ding, ding. <laughs> okay. A lot of people died. A lot of people and died. Which is. Yeah. There's, you know, yeah. So I'll get into that. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So as we've mentioned a few times, our next series here is inspired by the book Midnight in Chernobyl, the true story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster by Adam Higginbotham. It definitely feels like we are diving into new territory with this one, as we have yet to cover a disaster case. And you may be asking, like we were just going over, could this be considered true crime? In my opinion, yes, but it certainly is dark and twisty. And as we'll find out how the situation was handled could certainly be considered criminal. And I mean, there was a trial and convictions. So yes, in my opinion, this is true crime. Absolutely. Fight me about my, it. Uh, <laughs> my, mom, my mom found out what uh, book we were reading and she's like, what's that about? And I was like, Chernobyl. And she's like, hmm, that's not very murder and Merlot-y. And I was like, is it though? It's my show. We make Pretty the sure rules. we can talk about whatever we want. <laughs> we make the rules and it has the prerequisite of a lot of people died. So, mm-hmm. And there's a trial and a conviction. True. So. So here we go. Let's get into it. Also, it might just have the highest death toll out of any story that we've covered in the past. So there's that. And even maybe in the future, because there's a yeah. lot. Yeah. And although the official internationally recognized death toll is not very significant, other estimates reach upwards of tens of thousands, even to hundreds of thousands. So let that sink in for a moment. Yeah. Yeah. Scary. It's huge. Mm-hmm. Huge. So now that you have a taste of what we are in for, let's start the journey from the very beginning when the construction of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant was first started, along with the city that was created to house and support the workers. Contrary to popular belief, that city was not Chernobyl. It was actually the city of Pripyat. Pripyat was founded on February 4th, 1970 in northern Ukraine, near the Belarus border, and was named after the Pripyat River that it was built beside. Before diving deep into the subject, if you would have asked me to describe the city of Chernobyl, I would have told you about an eerie and abandoned place with a giant decrepit Ferris wheel, but I would have been wrong because that is actually Pripyat. There is a town of Chernobyl, however and it was only approximately 20 kilometers away. 
but that is not likely the source of images that would pop into your head when you think about the area today. Yeah, that's interesting because I never really thought about that when I was reading it. But mm -hmm. yeah, when you when you say like, I think we even talked about it in mm -hmm. one of our previous episodes, like dark tourism, where would you want to go? And I was like, I would not go to Chernobyl. And I was like, <laughs> I would. <laughs> but yeah, it was Pripyat. Is that how you say it? I've Pripyat. been reading it. I've been yes. reading it pronounced wrong in my head this mm. whole time. So yeah, Pripyat. I don't even know how I was <laughs> reading it pronounced, but it made sense in my head. I listened to last time's episode and I heard me stumble over that name. So I'm not yeah. I'm not struggling over names today. That's, That's your okay. job. That's my job. I got lots of Russian names to get through, so it'll be fun. <laughs> but we still have quite a ways to go into our series before we can talk about the current state of the post-apocalyptic looking city. So let's talk about what it was like when it was at its peak. Officially proclaimed a city in 1979, Pripyat had rapidly grown to almost 50,000 people, which 50,000 people in nine years Seems absolutely crazy to me, considering I live in a town less than 6,000 people, so I can't even imagine. What yeah, it's like 4,000 people, and it's never changed since the 50s, so. Yeah, <laughs> and then this city was just like, boom, we're here. Wow. Incredible. Not only was it a very young city, but so was its population, as one-third were children, and the average age was 26 years old. It seemed to have been quite the bustling place, and everybody seemed to be optimistic about the flourishing city. There were 13,414 apartments, 15 kindergartens and elementary schools, five secondary schools, 25 stores and malls, 27 cafes and restaurants, 10 gyms, 10 shooting galleries, three indoor swimming pools, two stadiums, one park, 35 playgrounds, and if you want to get real specific, 18,136 trees, 33,000 rose plants, and 249,247 shrubs. So thanks, Wikipedia, for that That's information. Impressive. Yeah. Like, they had a count on everything, apparently. I'm actually sure they did, but, you know. Yeah, <laughs> for real. But for all of those people, there was only one hospital, and it had the capacity of holding 410 patients. Oh, yeah. And one more thing. They had one nuclear power plant with four reactors. Kind of important to the story. It was a, it was a big one, too. Mm -hmm. Located three kilometers outside of Pripyat was the Chernobyl Nuclear Power Plant, officially titled the Vladimir Lenin Nuclear Power Plant. Pripyat was separate from the plant itself, and the few kilometers in between was considered a sanitary zone to ensure the population would not be exposed to low levels of radiation. <laughs> Which, oh, that was nice. That's nice. In hindsight, it doesn't seem like the best plan. Like, it doesn't seem very far away from civilization, but it was better than the initial plan because originally the plant was going to be built only 25 kilometers from the city of Kiev, which is Ukraine's capital. But thankfully, some smart person realized that if shit went south, maybe it shouldn't be right next to more than 1.6 million people. So in the end, they decided maybe. to build it 153 kilometers north of Kiev. Yikes. <laughs> The decision to build this nuclear reactor was not only to meet surging needs for electricity in the USSR, but also they were competing with the United States, as always. In the 50s, Soviet scientists claimed to lead the world in nuclear engineering, but eventually they had fallen behind. Then in 1969, as US astronauts first walked on the moon, the Soviet Ministry of Energy and Electrification couldn't take it anymore. So they called for an aggressive nuclear construction plan. A network of giant reactors were to be built, and this included the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. 
This enormous assignment was offered to one Viktor Burkhanov. Burkhanov had studied electrical engineering at the Polytechnic Institute of Tashkent, Uzbekistan, and had worked his way up to overseeing the launch of Ukraine's largest coal-fired station. None of those things really had anything to do with nuclear power, though. In fact, he knew very little about nuclear power. But in the USSR, knowledge and experience were considered less important than loyalty and the ability to get things done. Ah, uh, communism. Isn't it great? We will see that time and time again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so already, we're off to a great start. Let's give this inexperienced young electrical engineer the job of building Ukraine's first atomic power plant from scratch. But this wasn't the only immediate red flag. The deadlines given by his bosses were literally impossible to meet. The first two RBMK reactors were new models that were larger and more powerful than almost any other in the West, and they were expected to be built by 1975 and 1979. And just a brief rundown here, RBMK stands for Reactor Bolshoi Mushnowski Kanalny, or in other terms, High Power Channel Type Reactors. Are you impressed? Well done. <laughs> Mad applause. Thank you. Basically, they had a pressure tube design that used an enriched U-235 uranium dioxide fuel to heat water, creating steam that drives the reactor's turbines and generates electricity. Even with all of the necessary resources, equipment, and workmanship, it would have been an incredibly difficult task to build these massive, complicated reactors in that short amount of time, but he didn't even have those crucial elements readily available for him. The USSR was buckling, resulting in rampant supply shortages, theft, and embezzlement. This left Burkhanov lacking construction equipment, key mechanical parts, and building materials. The quality of work that went into the construction was just as poor as the supplies they received. Pipework and reinforced concrete was having to be thrown away because of how inadequately it was being made. So this obviously slowed down production as well. Oh, it's just so cringeworthy. Like, it just, gets me. It's basically going to be me talking for an hour about, like, all of the bad things leading up to this event. Like, yeah, I feel like people think, like, this is one event that no, triggered it was a, like... a, an explosion, but it was like, oh, my God, it goes on forever. Forever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's intense. The whole time I was reading it, I was, like, screaming at my book, like, what yeah. the fuck? Yeah, it's not okay. <laughs> That's how I felt while writing all of this. I'm like... Are you kidding me? <laughs> so these problems were happening all over the USSR, and it was well known. So the nation's power industry implemented an extra stage mandatory for all of their projects, and this was called pre-installation overhaul. To quote the book Midnight in Chernobyl, quote, Upon delivery from the factory, each piece of new equipment, transformers, turbines, switching gear, was stripped down to the last nut and bolt, checked for faults, repaired, and then reassembled according to original specifications, as it should have been done in the first place. Only then could it safely be installed. Such wasteful duplication of labor added months of delays and millions of rubles in the cost to any construction project. End quote. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, it's just it's like, ugh. ah, double work drives me crazy. Anytime where a job has to be done twice, it Makes me mad. Absolutely. Yeah. And I should mention, it was not only the power plant that Burkhanov was having to build, but also all of the infrastructure to get the materials and equipment to the site in the first place, including a receiving dock on the river, a new branch of railway track, and a temporary village for workers, which would eventually turn into the city of Pripyat. 
So not a small task. Just say no, no. And he was young. Yeah. He was like 34 or 35 or something like that. And they're like, it's like my age mm -hmm. trying to like not build a nuclear power plant and a supply chain. Yeah. And figure out how to get all of those supplies to this area and build a town while you're at it. Cause why not? I don't want to do that. So (laughs) yeah, (laughs) that requires an adultier adult. Thanks Mm -hmm. very much. Yes. Which is not my It is not surprising that Burkhanov was struggling with all of this, plus food shortages and labor disputes. So he was burnt out and not able to deliver his best work. He was missing all kinds of deadlines and was failing to provide cost estimates and design documents. Finally, in July 1972, after three grueling years of work, he decided to throw in the towel. But that didn't really go as planned either, because when he handed in his letter of resignation to the party's appointed supervisor from the energy ministry in Kiev, it was torn up in his face and he was told to get back to work. Yep. So yeah. <laughs> That's how you keep your, your people like in a good mental state. Right. So yeah, this is where things took a turn for the worst. Because Burganov did as he was told, but with a new attitude. It wasn't important if he did a good job or not. He just simply had to obey the party and implement their unrealistic plans by any means necessary. In order to meet the expectations of those above him, he cut corners, cooked the books, and falsified regulations. This system worked much better than the honorable and truthful one, as he started meeting his targets, he won wards of merit, and received pay bonuses for beating deadlines and exceeding labor quotas. Yikes. Yeah. So let's just, let's encourage that. That's a great idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Way to go, USSR. And just to give you guys some examples of oversights and wrongdoings that were made, let me tell you about two concerning decisions that Prokhanov and others allowed. First, there was the very flammable roof on the plant's turbine hull. It was covered in bitumen, or more commonly known here as asphalt. When the Ministry of Energy found out that bitumen had been used, they ordered the director to replace it with a fire-retardant material. Unfortunately, the material needed to re-roof the structure was 50 meters wide and almost a kilometer long, and it wasn't made anywhere in the USSR. So they made an exception. The roof remained as is, and everybody continued on their merry way. And I bring this example up as surprise. This decision will bite them in the ass later. (laughs) Badly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh Sure will. Mm -hmm. The second area of major oversight was on the fourth and most advanced reactor in Chernobyl. As the deadline for completion was coming up fast, Burkhanov decided to postpone one of the very time-consuming safety tests on the unit turbines in order to finish the project on time. Maybe don't skip safety tests. Maybe they're there for a reason. Just like, no. no, they're not. No, this won't cause problems. Down Quality the control is not a thing, Tara. No, it's no. just a fancy Mm-mm. word. <laughs> Coming from somebody who used to have a binder Uh full of quality control tasks. Yeah. 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 Don't skip those. I've seen the binder. Mm -hmm. She's serious. (laughs) It's very organized. I love it. Regardless, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant was completed on December 31st, 1983. The work was not done yet, however, because in 1985, Viktor Prokhanov received instructions to begin constructing Chernobyl 2 an entirely separate station with four more RBMK reactors to be built a few hundred meters away from the first plant. 
At that time, the plant was being considered a huge success, and in some ways it certainly was. It was creating 10% of Ukraine's electricity and provided work for everyone in the city of Pripyat and surrounding areas. However, the USSR's economic utopianism made it so overstaffing and absentees were an ongoing issue. Hundreds of men and women would be bused to the Chernobyl plant every shift, but a lot of them sat around with nothing to do. Those that were training to become nuclear engineers watched the experts work in order to become a part of the elite technical team themselves, but there were many others that were not so eager. In fact, many of the mechanics and electricians knew very little about nuclear plants. But perhaps their training could be at fault for that, as they were told that a reactor was more simple than a thermal power plant, and that radiation was so harmless, you could, quote, spread it on bread. Ah, some hurts my brain. <laughs> uh-huh. Some even drank from glassware that had been colored by steeping it in radioactive waters of the plant's used fuel pond. Now, <laughs> I ain't a doctor or a scientist, but maybe that's not the best idea either. Like, don't do that, you dumb shits. <laughs> oh. oh, it hurts. It physically hurts. I know. The dumb hurts. <laughs> the dumb. <laughs> the dumb is seeping into my brain, and it's hurting me. So, since we're on the topic, let's discuss radiation, its effects on humans, as well as the history leading up to the Chernobyl disaster. So what is radiation? Insert scary science, chemistry, (laughs) and physics PTSD here. (laughs) Because, ah. (laughs) Bring it on. Yep. Just going to say, I hope this makes sense. (laughs) Don't fact check me. (laughs) So we know that almost everything in the universe is made up of atoms. Atoms are a million times smaller than the width of a human hair, and at the center of each atom is nucleus, and these are incredibly dense. The example given in our reference book is, quote, if six billion cars were crushed together into a small suitcase and full of latent energy, end quote, which is just so crazy I can't even wrap my head around it. But anyways, (laughs) moving on. (laughs) Formed by protons and neutrons, The nucleus is orbited by a cloud of electrons and are bound together by what is called the strong force. There was a time where scientists believed that the strong force was so powerful that it made atoms indestructible and indivisible. However, our friend, Albert Einstein, maybe you've heard of him, figured out other ways. Yes, (laughs) that is what he's known for is his glamorous hair, nothing else. Yes. He theorized that if atoms could be torn apart, the process would convert their tiny mass into a relatively enormous release of energy. This theory is defined with the equation, the energy released would be equal to the amount of mass lost multiplied by the speed of light. E equals mc squared. Boom. Science. (laughs) And you just taught me more than I learned in high school physics. Yep. And I like to think that I kind of understand what that means. So I'm pretty proud of myself. (laughs) Nuclear energy was discovered by German scientists in 1938 when they determined that when atoms of a heavy metal uranium are bombarded with neutrons and the nuclei can be split apart, which releases nuclear energy. When the nuclei are split, their neutrons fly away and smash into other nearby atoms, causing their nuclei to split and in turn releasing even more energy. If enough uranium atoms were gathered and configured correctly, this process could sustain itself. Just a short seven years later, this theory was tested in a huge and horrendous way. The world's first atomic bomb was used. On August 6, 1945, a bomb containing 64 kilograms of uranium 
was detonated 580 meters above the Japanese city of Hiroshima. And again, this is just so crazy to me that my brain does not want to comprehend it. So I will just quote the book <laughs> Midnight in Chernobyl again. Quote, the bomb itself was extremely inefficient. Just one kilogram of the uranium underwent fission and only 700 milligrams of mass, the weight of a butterfly, was converted into energy. But it was enough to obliterate an entire city in a fraction of a second. Some 78,000 people died instantly or immediately afterwards, vaporized, crushed, or incinerated in the firestorm that followed the blast wave. End quote. Eek. Again, can't. Man, my face. Not good. And I think my brain doesn't want to comprehend all of that because it's just so freaking scary to me. Like, yeah, terrifying. I remember the weight of a butterfly can did do that. That I, oh my God. Like, I remember learning about the atomic bombings of World War II in high school, and I was shook. Like, you're telling me if some atoms split in half, it could wipe out a whole city. Like, I can't. That makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to think it, about it. Right? And yeah. the guys that figured this out? Right? What were you doing? I don't. How did, how? I don't even want to know how you figured it out. And also the fact that only one kilogram of the uranium actually underwent fission out of the 64 that the bomb contained, like, blows my mind. What, like, what would have happened if all 64 kilograms underwent that process? Like, I don't want to think about it. No, I don't either. Would Mm. we be here today? I don't know. Probably not. Probably not. Scary. So then it's like, the people that did it, did you really know what you're doing? Anyways, (laughs) (laughs) we are not here to talk about Hiroshima, but the reason it is very relevant to the topic of Chernobyl is the after effects of the radiation exposure that occurred to those that survived the initial explosion. By the end of the year, an additional 25,000 men, women, and children would die as a result of their exposure to radiation. That's horrifying. Oh, it's so scary. So again, I ask, what is radiation? Because we still haven't gotten there yet. According to the CDC, radiation is energy that comes from a source and travels through space at the speed of light. This energy has an electric field and a magnetic field associated with it and has wave-like properties. You could also call radiation electromagnetic waves. There is a wide range of electromagnetic radiation in nature, such as visible light. Radiation with the highest energies include forms like ultraviolet radiation, x-rays, and gamma rays. X-rays and gamma rays have so much energy that when they interact with atoms, they can remove electrons and cause atoms to become ionized. Radioactive atoms have unstable blends of protons and neutrons, and radioactivity is the spontaneous release of energy from an unstable atom to get to a more a more stable state. Ionizing radiation is the energy that comes out of a radioactive atom, and these give off four types of ionizing radiation. Alpha particles, beta particles, gamma rays, and neutrons. Alpha particles are large, heavy, and slow moving. They cannot penetrate skin, but they can be swallowed or inhaled. This can cause massive damage and death. There is even a powerful alpha emitter in one of the carcinogens found in cigarette smoke. So, smoking kills. Don't do it, kids. In case that's news, but yeah. I mean, it shouldn't be. <laughs> it shouldn't be, but this sounds super scary. So <laughs> I'm going to tell you again. Don't, don't do it. Don't, don't do it. Beta particles are small and fast moving. They can penetrate into living tissue, which causes visible burns and lasting genetic damage. The body will mistake beta emitting radioisotopes for essential elements and will concentrate them in specific organs and tissues, such as intestines, bones, and thyroid. 
especially in children, which can later cause cancer. Gamma rays are high-frequency electromagnetic waves traveling at the speed of light. They can travel long distances and can penetrate basically anything but thick concrete and lead. They will destroy electronics and shoot through humans like microscopic bullets. Basically, if you are severely exposed to any ionizing radiation, it's bad news bears, is what I've learned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. It can result in ARS, acute radiation syndrome. This will destroy the human body and can cause nausea, vomiting, hemorrhaging, and hair loss. Following that, a failing immune system, exhaustion of bone marrow, disintegration of internal organs, and of course, death. Oh, gives me the willies, man. Sounds horrible. Especially because you can't see it is what I think is the scariest part of all of this is you can't see radiation, but it can kill you. You don't know when it's going to kill you. Could be like right away, could be later. You don't know, but it could happen. Anyways, so some of that information was boring and some of it was kind of scary. So here's some random facts that I found very interesting. Cities at high altitudes and therefore closer to the sun have greater levels of radiation than those at sea level. The granite used to build the U.S. Capitol is so radioactive that the building would fail federal safety codes regulating nuclear power plants. And all living tissue is radioactive to some degree, including humans and bananas. This is because (laughs) of the radioisotope potassium-40. And since muscle contains the most potassium-40 compared to other tissues, men are generally more radioactive than women. Interesting. And I thought that was so cool. (laughs) I love the bananas. It's just just humans and bananas. (laughs) Humans and bananas. Yep. Radioactive. Hmm. I just thought of a song for our Spotify list, which I don't Oh, like. you hadn't thought of that already. I don't know why it hasn't popped in my head yet. Oh, it's been it on just... my list since day one. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of feel dumb, but it just was like, bing, <laughs> I'm here. Funny. I, you didn't have to say which no. song it was. <laughs> and I didn't know. <laughs> okay. So now that we have a better idea as to what radiation is, or at least we're going to pretend we have a better idea, let's briefly talk about some other major historical events relating to radiation and nuclear energy. We will start with the topic everybody should be somewhat familiar with, x-rays. And Michelle and I have some experience in this area. Her, Uh, more so than me. Just a little bit, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As, yeah, radiology is obviously used in the veterinary industry, which we are both in. So we're familiar with multiple types of x-ray machines, like large imaging tables, portable machines, and dental x-ray machines. And we have both used digital machines as well as have struggled with the film processors where you have to put the film into the cassette, take the x-ray, go to the tiny dark room, run the film through the processor that uses chemicals to develop the images. Fun times. (laughs) Fun times. Oh, oh, honey. Uh, I have also developed those pictures by hand in the dark room i would dip the pictures in the different things you were a dipper gotcha and then had to hang those up so yeah at least that wouldn't constantly jam or just you know decide not to work because yeah i'm sure it was your job for quite a while but it was also my job to fix the damn thing when it it was my job yes yes yeah i went on mat leave and left you with that yeah you did (laughs) (laughs) it was my job (laughs) i walked in and they're like here you go here's the job that everybody wants (laughs) hates yeah and so yeah it's good times good times fun stuff so anyways (laughs) the x-ray machines that we use today are far more advanced 
than what was used back in the day and far more safe. Thank goodness. No kidding. William Rentgen discovered x-rays in 19, or sorry, 1895 by accident while testing whether cathoid rays could pass through glass. Through experimentation, he found that a mysterious light would pass through most substances but leave shadows of solid objects. Because he didn't know what the rays were, he called them X, meaning unknown. So, huh. X-rays. Awesome. Science, man. I didn't know that. I thought that was cool. <laughs> Redkin quickly found out that x-rays would pass through human tissue too, making it possible to see bones and tissues beneath the skin. He took the world's first x-ray of his wife's left hand wearing a wedding ring. After looking at the picture of the bones in her hand, she was horrified and said, I have seen my own death. Redkin, well, that's a little dramatic. <laughs> it was a little dramatic, but I mean, kind of understandable at that time. Mm. Redkin went on to win the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1901. And while Rentkin would at least use some precautions while experimenting with his discovery, others would not. In 1986, Thomas Edison began dabbling in the world of radiology and designed- 1986? No, that's not right. No. <laughs> no. Edison was not around when no. 1986. Good catch. Good catch. Um, <laughs> uh, hold on. Let me get the Google machine. <laughs> 1896. Okay, so in 1896, Thomas Edison began dabbling in the world of radiology and designed a fluoroscopy which projected x-rays onto a screen, allowing him to see inside solid objects. It wasn't Edison that was harmed by his experiments, but rather his assistant, Clarence Daly. Clarence's hand was repeatedly exposed to x-ray, and when he started to develop burns, he switched to using the other hand. The burns would never heal, though and eventually his left arm and four fingers on his right hand had to be amputated. Later, when the cancer spread up his right arm as well, it was amputated too. The cancer traveled to his chest and he died in 1904, which made Clarence Daly the first known victim of man-made radiation at the age of 39. Thomas Edison's experiments with x-rays stopped immediately following his assistant's death, and he no longer wanted anything to do with radiation. Ugh. That just like makes me think of how many times my fingers accidentally got into a picture mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I'm really happy that they haven't fallen off yet. Yes. Or when you mm -hmm. barge through the door and yeah, and you get yeah. x-rayed even though you should have not. But I had a, <laughs> a, you know, I had a vet accidentally x-ray my head once. Oh, so that was That's, a good time. That was a good one. Yep. Yeah. Sure. I gave her a lot of crap for that. So I was like, you know perhaps don't x-ray my head <laughs> maybe don't maybe a we didn't get the shot because yes. this big old dome was in the way and b right. um that's my brain that i need that <laughs> i need that you know that explains a lot so People were beginning to understand that external exposure to radiation could be extremely harmful, but apparently they didn't think it would have the same effect with internal exposure. In fact, they believed it would basically have the opposite effect. In the early years of the 20th century, many people believed that taking medicines and health drinks that contain radium would give them energy. It's so backwards. <laughs> it's oh my like... God. <sighs> cool. Cool, cool, cool. How about no? Simple. <laughs> Other than using radium for health fads, it was also being used by clockmakers as it would glow in the dark when mixed with other elements. 
Watch factories in New Jersey, Connecticut, and Illinois would hire young women to do the delicate job of painting fluorescent numbers on watch faces. The workers were later known as the radium girls, and they had been trained to lick the tips of their brushes to make a fine point before dipping them into the pots of radium paint. Not surprisingly, this had horrible consequences. Oh, I can't even. Ugh. Their jaws and their skeletons started to disintegrate, and to make matters worse, their managers tried to accuse them all of having syphilis. All the while, knowing the risks of working with radium and hiding it from their employees. I don't think that that's a symptom of the SIF. I just, I just don't, and but hey, what, what do I know? Also across three states and everybody just specifically working in these types of factories are the only ones with this type of syphilis are being affected. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sure. Makes sense. Must be a traveling salesman that goes to all these same places. Oh, it's passing yes. it around. Must be. That's the scandalous only, only <laughs> reason this could happen. <laughs> So this resulted in a lawsuit, and it was the first time the public was made aware of the hazards of ingesting radioactive material. And if you want to learn more about that topic, I have a book on my reading list that's been there for a while. It's called The Radium Girls by Kate Moore, and I really want to dive further into that because yeah, pretty cool. Not for them, but <laughs> you know. No. They're poor faces. Ugh. Moving on, we already touched on Hiroshima, but as most of you know, that wasn't the only bombing at that time. Three days later, on August 9th, 1945, an atomic bomb was dropped over Nagasaki, Japan as well. These two instances provided the first opportunity to study the effects of acute radiation syndrome on a large number of people. The study, which went on for more than 70 years, created the universal database on the long-term effects of ionizing radiation on humans. Of those that lived through the initial explosion in Nagasaki, 35,000 people died within the first 24 hours, Another 37,000 died within the next three months, and over the next three years, a similar number developed leukemia. (laughs) So scary. So, so scary. I wish I had better words to use, but that's all I can say is so scary. Nope, it's terrifying. Getting back to nuclear plant disasters, next up is the worst nuclear disaster before the Chernobyl incident. It is known as either the Kushdem or the Mayak disaster. This occurred on September 29, 1957, when buried nuclear waste from a plutonium processing plant near Kushtum, Russia, exploded. At the time, it was still actually the USSR, and the industrial complex was built in order to develop nuclear weapons. It was an incredibly unsafe place for people to work and live near, as they were using the lakes around them to dump nuclear waste. Another issue was that the work was so hurried and the technology was so new that maintenance and repairs of the facilities were being overlooked. It was eventually revealed that the disaster was caused by the failure to repair a malfunctioning cooling system in a buried tank where liquid reactor waste was stored. For more than a year, the tank's contents grew steadily hotter from radioactive decay, reaching a temperature of about 350 degrees Celsius until it exploded. The non-nuclear explosion blew off the tank's one-meter-thick concrete lid and sent a plume of radioactive fallout throughout the region that had hundreds of thousands of inhabitants. As we will come to find out further, the authorities do not like to acknowledge these types of events and were very slow to order evacuations. It's a little bit of foreshadowing right there. Right, Mm. yeah, right there. In the coming months, hospitals were filled with those suffering from radiation sickness. It is likely that hundreds died as a result of the explosion, and it is still considered the third worst nuclear incident to date. The second worst has actually happened since the Chernobyl disaster, and one that probably most are familiar with. 
the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Following a major earthquake, a 15-meter tsunami disabled the power supply and cooling of three reactors, causing a nuclear accident starting on March 11, 2011. All three cores largely melted in the first three days. The plant also suffered a number of chemical explosions, which badly damaged the buildings. Radioactive material began leaking into the atmosphere and the Pacific Ocean, prompting the evacuations and an ever-widening exclusion zone. Which that freaks me out too. It does. And I kind of blanked that from my memory. Yes. Like I, I knew it happened, but I was like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it only comes up when, I don't know, anytime that something is weird or there's like something deformed, they're like, oh, that must have come from Fukushima. <laughs> it's just like, right. <laughs> and that's the only time it's acknowledged. <laughs> right. But it's too real, too real. There have been no deaths or cases of radiation sickness from the nuclear accident. At least that's what they say. All that is reported is that at least 16 workers were injured in the explosion, while dozens more were exposed to the radiation as they worked to cool the reactors and stabilize the plant. Long-term effects of the radiation are still debated, but many scientists say that aside from the region immediately around the plant, the risks of radiation remain relatively low. This nuclear disaster is interesting because it wasn't necessarily human error that triggered it, although there was a lack of preparedness if such an event were to happen, so some still consider it to be a man-made disaster. It's like, for real, you put it like right on the edge, like right by the ocean. You didn't think that this was a possibility? It's kind of sketch, just saying. Ten years later, several towns in the area remain off-limits. Authorities are working to clean up the area so residents can return, but it will not be an easy or speedy task. Media reports in 2020 said that the government could start to release the water filtered to reduce radioactivity into the Pacific Ocean as early as next year, so this year. Some believe that the huge ocean will dilute the water and would be a low risk to human and animal health, while others believe that the water would contain material that could potentially damage human DNA. At this time, no final decisions have been made about what to do with the liquid. How about don't put it in the ocean? It sounds like a bad idea. It sounds like a, I'm not I'm not a nuclear scientist, but um, don't do that. With everything else going on in the world in 2020, don't. 2021, we don't need Please. nuclear I waste. Beg of you in the oceans. Don't <laughs> our whales, our dolphins, our sea turtles—they don't need that. They don't. Just and whatever say. lives at the bottom of the ocean, that doesn't need it either. Yeah, just say they're fine. Just leave them alone. They're just chilling down there. So after all of that, we should probably get back to the main topic here, which is Chernobyl. In case you've forgotten, (laughs) I said I was going to be brief, and I am never brief, so I apologize. Before the big interesting stuff, though, so it is, and I just can't stop. Like I just have to understand like how everything works. So I just I don't know. I have the too much gene. That's fine. Before the big disaster, there were two other incidences that happened at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. On September 9, 1982, a partial core meltdown occurred in reactor number one as a result of a faulty cooling valve remaining closed following maintenance. One of the reactors came online, the uranium in the tank overheated and ruptured. The extent of the damage was relatively minor and no one was killed during the accident. There was, however, a significant release of radiation from the ventilation stack, as the operators didn't even notice an accident had occurred until several hours later. (laughs) Yes, facepalm. (laughs) is very appropriate. Oh, man. 
The accident was not made public for years, even though cleanup had to take place in and around the power plant and in the city of Pripyat. After eight months, the reactor had been repaired and was up and running again. But don't tell anybody. But shh, yeah, it's a secret. Another serious incident apparently occurred in 1984, according to some KGB records that just became declassified in 2021. Though I couldn't find out what actually happened. All we know is that whatever happened, happened in the third and fourth reactor, and apparently the government knew as early as 1983 that the power plant was, quote, one of the most dangerous nuclear power plants in the USSR, end quote. Oh, absolutely. Keep it running. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. So you couldn't fine. you couldn't find out information from the KGB? Surprise. <laughs> no, I was shocked. <laughs> Shooketh over here. <laughs> Shooketh, if you will. <laughs> so on that ominous note, let's fast forward to the spring of 1986. Everything was going great, especially for Viktor Perkhanov, as he was about to be awarded the Star of the Hero of Socialist Labor and would be promoted to work in Moscow. Taking his place as plant director was going to be Nikolai Fomin, the chief engineer. This exciting news was to be announced on the May 1st holiday. Fomin is another key player in all of this because he was responsible for the day-to-day technical operation of the station. The arrogant electrical engineer had no previous experience in atomic power, but had the right ideologies to land him the job. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Oh yeah, he's great. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Neither Brokhanov nor Fomin was at the nuclear plant when the explosion occurred on April 26, 1986. The station's deputy chief engineer of operations, Anatoly Dyatlov, was running the show, and he was going on his second day with no sleep. There was a turbine... Right, that's fine. Totally makes sense. There was a turbine generator safety test scheduled to take place in the afternoon before that, but now it was past midnight and the test still had not been performed. Dyatlov was not satisfied with this. At 55 years old, he was actually very experienced and knew his job quite well. He was a veteran physicist and a nuclear expert. He oversaw the operations of both Units 3 and 4 and was responsible for hiring and training the workers. He studied everything there was to know about the RBMK reactors and knew all of the mathematics, physics, mechanics, thermodynamics, and electrical engineering that went into his systems. So, so far, so good, right? Finally, somebody that knows what they're doing. (laughs) In theory. In theory, but not exactly. Dyatlov's downfall was being incredibly stubborn and having no tolerance for those that didn't follow his orders. Anyone that failed to meet his standards was scolded, called a fucking goldfish, and he would write their name down in a notebook that he always carried so he could remember the people that he considered to be inadequate, which is the level of petty that I aspire to be. I was going to say, that's some goals right I there. love that. Just like you're having a conversation and just somebody pulls out a notebook and they just like start taking notes and you're like, what, what are you writing? <laughs> Shit. God damn it. Oh, that's awesome. Dyatlov's leadership tactics made it so no one liked working for him, but they would always do as they were told in order to avoid his wrath, even if they didn't agree with his instructions. Which brings us back to the fateful night in the unit control room number four. As mentioned before, there was a safety test to be done. The test was to check a key safety system that would protect reactor number four during an electrical blackout. If the plant suddenly lost power, they needed to keep the giant coolant pumps to continue circulating water through the reactor in order to avoid a core meltdown. 
The station did have backup diesel generators. However, they would take between 40 seconds and three minutes to start up, which doesn't seem like a long time, but in this case, it would be long enough for a disaster to begin. Mm -hmm. So to avoid this, the reactor designers developed what they called a rundown unit, which is a mechanism that uses the momentum of the unit's turbines to drive the pumps for those crucial seconds. The rundown unit was an important safety feature that was supposed to have been tested before reactor number four became operational, but this so happens to be the test that Viktor Brikhanov decided to skip in order to meet his deadlines. That was nice. Those yeah. good choices he made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Since then, the safety test had been attempted multiple times, but they had not yet been successful. This time around, the reactor had been scheduled for its first ever maintenance shutdown which would allow an opportunity to conduct the trial in real-world conditions. Makes me nervous. <laughs> yeah. At 2 p.m. on Friday, April 25th, modifications had been made to the turbine generators, and the test was ready to begin. That didn't happen, however, as they were interrupted by the central dispatcher at the Kiev electrical grid. Every kilowatt of electricity that the Chernobyl plant could produce was needed in the city of Kiev, as all the factories and businesses were working at a frenzy to finish their work before the May Day holiday. May Day is basically like Labor Day, but it was a huge celebration. The earliest that Unit 4 would be able to go offline would be about 9 p.m. But by midnight, the test still hadn't taken place. The team of electrical engineers that came from the city of Donetsk to monitor the procedure were threatening to cancel their contract and leave if it was not started soon. The rest of the staff, who had been trained to run the test, were now at the end of their shift. So they went home and were replaced by new staff that didn't know what they were walking into. Even better. The physicist from the plant's nuclear safety department that was supposed to be there to help the operator through the test did not show up. He was told the test had already been completed. Again, like I said, it just snowballs. It just keeps going forever. So now stepping up to the plate was Leonid Topdanov, only 25 years old and two months into his job. Oh, man. That poor boy. I just feel so bad for him. I do too. That is not his fault. He would be in charge of running the instruments on the senior reactor control engineer's desk and piloting the reactor through a shutdown. So many red flags. Just like stop. Just, just stop. stop. Just, just don't do it. Just Let's don't do, do this right another now. day. Exactly. <laughs> So even though conditions were not perfect or even good whatsoever, rescheduling the safety test was not an option for Anatoly Dyatlov. If it wasn't done now, they would have to wait at least another year. And some say he was expecting to be promoted to Foman's position right away, so he had to show that he could get things done. Also in the control room was the shift foreman, Alexander Akimov, who was responsible for supervising the test under the direction of Dyatlov. Akimov, 32, was an experienced reactor control engineer and was actually the senior member of the operating staff in the room that night. Dyatlov's role was actually just administrative, and even though he had vast knowledge about how the reactors worked, he could not actually run the controls himself. Even though Akimov was quite competent, it was well known that he was a pushover, and we already know how much Dyatlov needed everything to be done his way. Yeah, but give the kid who's got two months experience the power to press that button. Uh That seems like a great idea. Yeah, awesome. Once given the go-ahead by the Kiev grid dispatcher, 
the operators slowly lowered the power to a steady 720 megawatts, just above the minimum level required for the test. Dyatlov insisted that it should be lowered to 200 megawatts, assuming that the lower the power, the safer the test would be. Akimov knew better, as this would make the reactor very unstable and difficult to manage. He even showed Dyatlov the protocol that stated the test could not be done at less than 700 megawatts. The two men argued, but of course, Dyatlov won. The young Toptonov began decreasing the power, but he made a huge error. Before the engineer was placed in that role, at midnight, the computerized regulation system was set to a local automatic control, which would allow him to manage regions of the core individually, but was usually switched off when operating the reactor at a lower power. So he began transferring the system to global automatic to help him keep the RBMK on a steady course. Before completing the change, he was supposed to choose a level at which the computer would maintain power, but he somehow missed this step and the reactor's computer defaulted to the last set point it had been given, which was almost zero. Yeah. The number started to drop and it could not be controlled. Within two minutes, the power output had crashed to only 30 megawatts. Short time later, the display was almost at zero. The reactor stalled and was being poisoned by xenon. It should have been clear to the operators that the test needed to be aborted and the reactor needed to be shut down immediately. But that is not what happened. There is actually a lot of conflicting information about what happened next. Dyatlov maintained that he wasn't even in the control room when all of this took place and the power began to fall, though he couldn't recall exactly where he had been. Convenient. He also claims that he gave no instructions to the operators during the next crucial moments. Others in the control room that night remember things quite differently. According to Toptonov, Dyatlov not only witnessed the power falling, but also instructed him to remove more control rods. The engineer refused as he knew that it could increase reactivity and leave the core dangerous and uncontrollable. But after six long minutes of arguing, Toptonov did as he was told. Otherwise, it was made very clear that he would have lost his career and his comfortable life in Pripyat. Over the next 20 minutes, he began removing control rods and was able to get the reactor back up to 200 megawatts. But that was as far as it would go. At 1 a.m., 203 of the unit's 211 control rods had been removed, even though removing such a large number of control rods was forbidden without the approval of the plant's chief engineer. And just to quickly explain how the control rods work, the reactivity or the power of the reactor is controlled by raising or lowering the control rods, which when lowered into the moderator, absorb neutrons and reduce the fission rate. A minimum reserve for an RBMK reactor is supposed to be 30 control rods. In the end, the number four unit only had six remaining. Man, I know what happens. I am stressed. I, it stresses me out too. Every time I go through it, I want to stop it, but there's nothing that I can do to stop it because it's already happened. Sorry. (laughs) Then two more of the giant main circulation pumps connected to the reactor and came back online. These extra pumps were never intended for such a low power level. So by driving more water into the core, it further disrupted the balance of reactivity, water pressure, and steam within the reactor. If there was any increase in power, the reactor would be susceptible to the positive void effect, which could result in rapid increase in power to around 100 times the reactor's rated capacity. But after all of this, Dyatlov was still apparently calm and was still confident that the test would proceed with no issue. Give up on the test, man. (laughs) That's all I can say. Like, just stop. Goddamn. So, it was time to begin the generator rundown. Normally, 
simulating the effects of a total power blackout would be a simple process. Operators would cut off the supply of the steam from the reactor to the turbines and press the design basis accident button. This signals to the reactor safety system that all external power to the plant had been lost, which will trigger the startup of the emergency generators and connect the rundown of the turbine to the main circulation pumps. The electricity produced by the turbine would keep the pumps going until the generators would take over. The process should only take less than a minute, but of course, it would not go that smoothly. Inside the reactor, the cooling water passing through the field channels was growing hotter and the amount of steam in the core was increasing. A positive void effect was indeed happening. However, readings from the reactor in the control room remained within normal limits. So it was time to end the test. The reactor was shut down, and with this, the control rods began their descent back into the reactor. At first, the reactivity started to fall as it was supposed to, but the control rods had a deadly design flaw. Their tips were made of graphite, and rather than reducing the reaction, the graphite tips briefly increased fission in the core. Since almost all of the rods had been removed and now were being plunged back in at once, it generated more steam and more reactivity than the reactor could handle. In the control room, <laughs> I know, I know, times just too. I'm so stressed. <laughs> in the control room, they could hear the reactor starting to roar, and the building began to shake. The reactor was being destroyed. With more steam rapidly being produced and not being able to vent, the immense pressure ruptured fuel lines and exploded out of the roof of the reactor. A few seconds later, there was a second explosion. This was likely caused by a mixture of hydrogen and oxygen forming inside the reactor and igniting. The reactor core was completely destroyed and almost seven tons of uranium fuel mixed with other hazardous materials created some of the most dangerous substances known to man and then was released into the atmosphere. Ah, <laughs> I hate it. I hate, I hate it, it so much. 25 to 30 more tons of uranium and highly radioactive graphite were thrown from the core and landed all around unit four and onto the roof of the turbine hall where it started a fire. Because of course it did, because the roof of the turbine hall- Why not? Was extremely flammable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. None of the workers truly knew what happened at that time or really understood how dangerous of a situation they were in. The first person to die in the Chernobyl disaster was senior operator Valerie Kudemchuk, as he was either instantly vaporized in the explosion or crushed beneath the collapsing concrete and machinery. His body was never found and therefore remains in the plant to this day. A few minutes after the explosion occurred, firefighters were already on their way. Meanwhile, in the Unit 4 control room, Dyatlov and the others were still trying to determine what was going on. They could see that the control rods had begun their descent into the reactor, however, somehow got stuck partway. Dyatlov ordered two trainee reactor control engineers to force the control rods into the core by hand. Then he gave the Ak <laughs> bad idea. Then he gave Akimov orders to get more water into the reactor. Of course, this was all pointless because there was nothing left of the reactor, and sending workers down there was basically sending them to their deaths. Yeah, but they had no idea. They didn't know. No idea. Alexander Yuchenko was a senior mechanical engineer and was working in the engineer's room when the explosion happened and he was suddenly immersed in dust, steam, and darkness. He was shook up, and he was trying to make sense of what just happened, but a call came through from Control Room 3 to bring stretchers immediately. He didn't hesitate to jump into action. 
Along the way, he came across coworkers and friends that he couldn't even recognize until they started to speak. They were bloody, dazed, and scalded by steam. He then, oh, that just, it hurts me. Ugh, I just got the willies. I just got the willies too, because. Then ran into his colleague, Yuri Tregub, which is, it should be the easiest name to say, Tregub, but it's the one that I struggle with the most. I don't know why. <laughs> Yuri Tregub, who had been sent to turn on the taps for the emergency coolant system. Yevchenko knew that this was a two-person job, so he went with. The entrance was blocked by rubble, so they needed to go down two flights of stairs to try a different door. At that location, the water was up to their knees and the door was jammed shut. They were able to see through a small gap, however, and what they saw inside was horrifying. Everything was destroyed, and instead of a ceiling, all they could see was stars. Normally, stars aren't something to be afraid of, but in this case, it's definitely an exception. Yeah, that's bad news bears, man. Very much so. Even more frightening, though, was a shimmering pillar of blue-white light that went straight up into the night sky. It flickered with color coming from the flames within the burning building. This was a phenomenon created by radioactive ionization of the air from an open nuclear reactor. Ugh, seriously, I just got chills. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Not something you ever want to see. (laughs) But the craziest thing to me is, For some unknown reason, these men did not die, at least not right away, and their deaths are not recorded as a result of the Chernobyl disaster. That's crazy. I know. Yuvchenko passed away in 2008, but I couldn't find out any information about Trigub. But still, like, how did they not die immediately or at least shortly after looking into an exploded nuclear reactor core? Like, that blows my mind. I guess they got very lucky. I don't know. Horseshoes up their butts, man. (laughs) (laughs) that's how radiation poisoning is prevented apparently i I guess because science science yes we're all about the science (laughs) others wouldn't be as lucky as them though on their way to report what they just witnessed yuvchenko and trigub ran into the two trainees that were sent to move the control rods and their immediate boss yuvchenko tried to stop them and explain that the mission was not only pointless but extremely dangerous but the boss insisted that they went anyways The three men went into the reactor hall where they could see for themselves that the control rods were gone along with everything else. It only took a couple seconds for all of them to receive a fatal dose of radiation. The only others that knew that the core was exposed at that time were a few firefighters as one, Anatoly Zakharov, had found graphite on the ground beside Unit 4 when they pulled up. He had watched the reactor being constructed so he knew exactly where it came from. Still, they were sent inside to find the source of the fire without any additional protective gear or equipment to monitor radiation exposure. Oh, man. They spent 15 minutes trying to search through the rubble and establish what had happened. All they could see for sure was that parts of the turbine hall roof had collapsed and what remained was on fire. They tried to get more information, but their walkie-talkies weren't working and neither were the phone lines. Meanwhile, fire brigades from Pripyat and Kiev were also rushing towards the burning nuclear plant to help with the fires. Plant workers and firefighters were not the only ones that would be affected by the disaster, though. The total population within 30 kilometers of the power plant was between 115,000 and 135,000 people. However, most of them were asleep at this time and would have no way of knowing dangerous radiation was seeping into their bodies every second they lied there. Ugh. One of those sleeping peacefully that night was Viktor Perkhanov. 
That is until he was awoken by telephone just minutes after the explosion and was informed there was an accident. After that, everything changed. From the book Midnight in Chernobyl, quote, It was not yet 2 a.m. when Brikhanov reached the plant. He saw the jagged outline of Unit 4 lit from within by a dim red glow, and he knew that the worst had happened. I am going to prison, he thought. End quote. That is where I'm ending. Shivers. (laughs) (laughs) That was a lot, but wow, yeah, good job. Thank you. (laughs) I feel like other people that do Chernobyl, they're like, okay, let's start with the explosion, and then we'll just go from there. And then I'm just like, I can't, I can't. No, I got to start at the beginning. I have to explain all of those mistakes. Exactly. Like it's important. Every time I hear other versions of the story like it's just so simplified and i like honestly i simplified it too compared to what's actually what actually happened is is much condensed as i could possibly make it but like i feel like other times that i read about it or i hear about it it's like yeah the control rods and that was what happened and that's the reason why it exploded it's like yeah that's obviously one of the major components one of the things but there's like so many like the fact that it's asphalt on the on the roof roof and all the things there shouldn't have been and you know all of the corners that were cut and exactly oh my god it all adds up to this yes <laughs> so i just i thought it was really important to put all of that in, in i think there. You did. yeah i think it was needed 100 percent. good we like so. to be accurate in our storytelling i try to be <laughs> i hope i was yeah um yeah i had a lot of sources for this because there's a lot of information. Obviously, Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham. Uh, the World Nuclear Association, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, ColumbiaSurgery.org, <laughs> Radiopedia, Britannica, BBC News, and PBS Frontline. All kinds of information. What did you find on Columbia Surgery? That's a great question. It was probably something to do with radiation. Uh, I believe it was to do with um, Redkin. And his oh probably his experiments and stuff like that. I think that's what yeah. I found there. <laughs> Good question though. <laughs> I was like doing surgery on the on the off hours there, Terry. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? So yeah. How do you feel? <laughs> Stressed. Oh my God. Mm. The story stresses me out so bad. And it always has. Yeah. Um, I've said it before when I watched the show, I could only watch like one episode at a time because mm-hmm. it was too much. Um, I'd have to, I, well, I always read at night, right. And I'm like mm-hmm. reading about physics and it's awesome, but I'm also like, I'm now having radioactive fueled dreams because yes. of it. So I'm going to have to set you aside for a day to step away just because it's not okay. It's, it's a freaky thing. I think anyway, it overwhelms like, me. I know just that this is possible. It scares the shit. And the immensity of it, right. Exactly. It's not just. It's not just affecting like 10 people in right. the building. It's affecting like everyone. Yes. Currently 135,000 people like are in the vicinity, but that's, that's not even it. Like that's it's not even it. That. And it's so scary. And like I said before, radiation is invisible. We can't see it happening. We can't, <laughs> I know. It, you know, coming towards us. We can't dodge it. It's just there. It's not like we're all wearing dosimeters that are going off, like when we reach our level. When I took x-rays at work, Mm -hmm. I had to wear my dosimeter and we sent those in every three months. And it's like, if you ever reach this level, you're done. You're done for the year. You're not taking any more x-rays. You are not allowed. 
Exactly. I don't know anybody who ever registered anything for mm-hmm. radiation because of x-rays, but right. not that I worked with anyways. Um, yeah, but still, and all the protective equipment that we would wear to take x-rays compared yeah. to like them going toward, like that also stresses me out is like all these people are coming to help, which obviously is great in a disaster situation, great. but it's also so scary at the same time that all these people are flooding into this area to help, but going towards death, like, right. And like, we're taught in school, you protect your thyroid, mm-hmm. you protect you, like your reproductive organs, mm-hmm. your hands, your eyes. Right. Yeah. So like lead gowns, lead gloves, yes. like exactly. lead thyroid collars, like special goggles should be like, I have glasses, so I didn't have right. to wear the goggles or whatever, but you're supposed to like. Exactly. And these people were, had nothing, nothing at all. <laughs> Not a thing. No. And like, these were the top nuclear scientists in the world. It's just like, I don't know how it was not more alarming that. I feel like like nuclear scientists and just what I was getting from reading it. I think that these nuclear scientists had almost like a God complex. Yes, I think so. Because they didn't think that anything could go wrong. They're like, what's the worst that can happen? This is awesome. Right. Right. Look at what we did. We made nuclear science happen and now we're making power cool which is great great. job but also you should have a like a healthy respect for exactly the the monster that you're working with right Mm -hmm. i don't know yes people that are too optimistic make me (laughs) nervous sometimes which is my husband because we argued about nuclear power the other night which was hilarious but (laughs) part of the reason why we're recording later (laughs) than we're supposed to is because i got so heated over this argument about nuclear power with my husband (laughs) that i couldn't focus and i couldn't write anymore (laughs) but you know what that's fair basically he was like oh no i could do that i i could make our own nuclear power no you couldn't no please don't melt your face off please don't and he's like melt your face off He's like, you're only looking into worst case scenarios. It's not that bad. And I'm like, but it this could be. Situation. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, oh my God, I don't, I can't even get into it because it just fires me up. <laughs> uh, next time, just invite me over and we'll like tag team fight him. I had my script in front of me. He was talking to me as if I didn't know anything about radiation. I'm like, I literally just spent eight hours writing about radiation. In like, it to win I've it. been in it. I'm in this rabbit hole and you're just going to walk out out of the blue and be like, you don't, you don't know what you're talking about, but I, I do. I could make my own nuclear plant. <laughs> oh man. I truly believe it's our husband's job to yes. drive us crazy. Oh so, yes. Yes. You know. It's along the same lines of my husband always tells me that he could just buy an airplane and then he would just fly it. And he and needs no training crash. and he needs no certification or anything. He's just going to buy a plane on Kijiji and fly it. And literally every time he brings it up, we get into a fight because it makes me so mad. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, yes. Anyways, has nothing to do with this. <laughs> so next part in the series, hopefully I can wrap it up. And I only want to do two parts of this. It's very mm-hmm. intense, but like. I will try to wrap it up in two parts. So I'll talk about how the disaster was handled in the next few days, months, and years to follow. And I'll talk about the effects it had on the workers, community, environment, all that good stuff, and what Chernobyl is like today. And I might throw in some conspiracy theories and myths in there as well, because those are always fun. 
Absolutely. Sounds great. Yeah. So you ready for some fluff and stuff? Please. Yeah. Please. Like extra fluffy would be good. Well, yeah. it's really, it's kind of not fluffy. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I feel like it goes on the theme of this because doomsday. Mm. This whole scenario, it just reminds me of doomsday and doomsday preppers. So my question is geared towards that. So Michelle, if you had to subscribe to one doomsday theory, what event do you think would be most likely to end civilization? <laughs> um, I have no idea because oh. I don't like to think about it. What's yours? Let, let me keep thinking. Oh. Okay. Mine is an EMP. So like electromagnetic pulse, which yeah. like would destroy everybody's like any type of technology would just immediately shut down with this pulse. And I feel like Right now, where our civilization is, everything is so reliant on technology that people would just not be able to cope without it. And they no longer know how to live without technology and energy and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like there's only a select few, which I aspire to be one day is just to be able to like live off grid, off grid and, you know, live off the land. However, being that we're in Canada, it'd be really freaking difficult in the winter when it's minus 40. So yeah. Yeah. So get real good at making a fire. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. But I feel like that's like a very real possibility that like a government could do that to like North America to shut down like all of our systems, just like true. Yeah. EMP, you're screwed. And it's like, yeah, Shit. yeah we are. That's my okay. thought anyways. I'm going to go on theme and uh, <laughs> I'm going to say some sort of nuclear Holocaust, just like. That's, that's totally fair as well. Yeah too many stupid people in power uh-huh. think that it's going to be a good idea to start a nuclear war and oh that makes me so uncomfortable doesn't it yeah, yeah that's the thing that like especially after I'm all like, of this <laughs> I'm zombie too- apocalypse that would be fun sure right. right fun theory i think we're i think we're well set can i just say i think we're well set up for zombie apocalypse like we are specifically yeah. like just given our location and our setup like we could see them coming for a while. We could. We would be, pra- like, we live in the prairies. So it's yeah. like, first of all, why are you coming out all this way to my house? I doubt yeah, that's going to happen. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. But don't drive into my yard. Don't zombie drag your legs in. Exactly. You know, try to eat my brains. Don't Just do it. tell you, it's not a good idea because I can see it coming. So yeah. I think we're okay on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, <Yeah>. continue. <laughs> or like, I mean, the other possibility is like, a comet could hit Earth mm-hmm. and like yes, that's wipe a- out civilization again. Because I mean, it did it once. It could happen again. In theory. Yep. Here, there was a comet. Dinosaurs died. Yep. Right. That's what I know. Or, you know, those or- other guys in space. Aliens. Aliens. And yeah. I just don't want to think about that. Right? No. <laughs> I blocked that from my mind. Yeah. So, yeah. anyways. <laughs> I think dooms. I think like I think preppers and stuff. I think it's fantastic. It's very entertaining to me. I think more than likely, if the world was going to end, civilization is like out. It's because stupid people are in charge. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. That's definitely true. Excellent. Well, make sure to answer our question as well. And obviously let us know what you think about the episode. And if you're as stressed about this as I am, please let us know because my goodness, my face. Mm-hmm. Yes. You can email us at Merton Merlot at your, at, wow. <laughs> mm, good one. You can. 
Sorry, now I have the giggles. Uh-huh. You can email us at murderandmerlot at gmail.com. <laughs> Find us on Instagram at Murder and Merlot Podcast, Facebook at Murder and Merlot Podcast, and Twitter at Murder and Merlot One. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed. And if you don't, you're dead to me. Yeah. And remember to drink wine. Because it's not good to keep things bottled up. Bye. Bye. <laughs>